According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again in the book of Numbers. We are in Numbers chapter 6 tonight. We're going to start with Numbers chapter 6, and then we're going to move on to Numbers chapter 10. And if that seems odd to you, it's because we've already done 7, 8, and 9 before we, kind of in between Exodus and Leviticus, we had gone and uh, taken a couple of chapters out of Numbers. Uh, the events that are described in Numbers 7, 8, and 9, uh, they center on the completion of the tabernacle, and they center on some of the details, the ordination of the priests and the other uh, dedication of the uh, furnishings and things of that nature. So we've already, essentially, we've already covered 7, 8, and 9. So that explains tonight where we are dealing with chapter 6 and chapter 10. This is day 62 in the Through the Bible uh, reading calendar. Nazarite vows, that's the subject of chapter 6. And then in chapter 10, we'll actually see the army uh, marching forth in the uh, order that we were looking at on Sunday, uh, detailing the organization of the camp, the uh, the forces of the different tribes and their structure as they were organized into a, mil- a military formation. All right. Numbers chapter 6. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon our Father in His faithfulness to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing that we have, the privilege and the blessing that we have to assemble together tonight. We thank you for the provision of truth that you have so abundantly made available for each one of us. We thank you for a lampstand that shines forth and for the word of God that's taught and for the uh, the opportunities that we have to study to show ourselves approved. Father, we ask that you would reward the hunger, the appetite, the positive volition of brothers and sisters that, that desire to uh, to learn your truth that you would set aside distractions, hedge us about, protect us, and bless this time of study. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All righty. We are keeping an eye on the doors <laughs> based on the fellow that we saw earlier. So, all right, God is faithful. All right, Numbers chapter 6. That's the explanation, by the way. When you first walk in and I'm looking at you suspicious and then I see that it's you and, oh, okay, we're good. See, we're good. All right. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when a man or woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite to dedicate himself to the Lord, he shall abstain from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar, whether made from wine or strong drink, nor shall he drink any grape juice, nor eat fresh or dried grapes. All the days of his separation, he shall not eat anything that is produced by the grapevine from the seeds even to the skin. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall pass over his head. He shall be holy until the days are fulfilled, for which he separated himself to the Lord. He shall let the locks of his hair, of, uh, the locks of hair on his head, grow long. Verse six. All the days of his separation. Are you noticing a pattern here? All the days of his separation. We have it again in in verse eight. All the days of his separation. So. It doesn't tell you how many days that is, does it? It's variable. It could be anything. It's whatever the person determines before he starts this Nazarite vow period. Okay? So this is what we're going to deal with here in this chapter. Specific instructions for the Nazarite vow are spelled out 
here. Number 6, verses 1 through 21. And it's not terribly different from uh, what we had studied previously when we were related to the special vows or what were called the difficult vows, the offerings that were required if in fact you had vowed to dedicate an animal or you had vowed to dedicate a person, uh, maybe a son, maybe a daughter, maybe a slave, maybe a, maybe you were going to dedicate a, uh, an animal or a piece of property. You were going to, there were, there were conditions that were put in place for these special vows, the votive offerings, the free will offerings, just something out of the goodness of your heart. You were overwhelmed by God's grace and you decided you wanted to dedicate something for, for the, the service to the Lord. And so there were provisions that were made for that. And then there were provisions that were made to redeem such offerings if in fact you wanted to redeem and, and pay a fifth on top and, uh, and, and re- ransom back the, the uh, animal or the person or the thing that you had vowed. Anyway, this now is more personal than any of that because instead of dedicating a third party or dedicating a possession or dedicating uh, something of that nature, now in this case, you are what's being dedicated. You are the one that says uh, the, the dedication is me. I'm going to dedicate myself under these nazer, these, these uh, separation requirements. And so that's what we're dealing with here. And it may not be, uh, in fact, very unusual for it to be lifelong. This is expected to be for a set period of time, maybe for a week or for a month or for a year or whatever it is that, that a person wanted to subject themselves to this. It's like fasting. We recommend if you're going to have a season of prayer and fasting that you go ahead and you dedicate it right up front and you just say, I'm going to do this for a week or I'm going to do this for two weeks or whatever you're going to do. Um, don't just leave it open-ended and then just say, I'm going to keep doing it as long as I can endure. It's not an endurance test, okay? You're not suffering for Jesus by how hungry you get on your 40-day fast, whatever the case may be. Just determine what it is up front and then get busy with what it's designed for. It's designed not for the suffering and hardship. It's designed for the undistracted devotion to the Lord. And uh, we'll be seeing the issues there uh, here as we work our way through these verses. So this is a good follow-up to the previous teaching on the difficult vows that closed closed out the book of Leviticus. You might recall on Sunday morning we dealt with that in Leviticus 27. It's a great follow-up to that chapter there. The vow of a Nazarite. And uh, the Hebrew noun of Nazir is what we're looking at here. The strongest number is 5139. And it does speak. It speaks to a consecrated one, a devoted one, somebody that is devoted or dedicated to the verb nazer, to dedicate oneself to the Lord. And uh, it's, it's, you can see how it might be used interrelatedly or, or perhaps in parallel to, uh, to like hagiadzo or hagios, uh, terms that express holiness or that stress the aspect of being set apart. This, though, stresses the idea of a dedication. So to dedicate, to consecrate, or to separate. Under normal circumstances, the Nazarite vow was for a finite period of time. And I already highlighted the uses in verse 4, verse 5. I don't think we didn't get down to verse 13, but you see these things that are mentioned here. Um, Verse 4, all the days of his separation. Well, how long is that? Whatever. You know, maybe maybe one believer decided to do it for for 30 days, another believer decided to do it for 10 days or, or whatever. That's not the point. It's during the the time that they are setting themselves apart. So it's all the days, whatever it may be. Same thing with verse 5, all the days 
of his vow of separation. Verse 6, all the days of his separation shall not go near a dead person. Because remember, touching a corpse leaves you ceremonially unclean. And the purpose for your dedication is to maintain maximum ritual purity in the worship system of the Levitical Code. Uh, Verse 8, all the days of his separation he is holy to the Lord. You get down to verse 13. This is the law of the Nazarite when he the days of his separation are fulfilled. Oh, look at that. It comes to an end. There's a, there's a closing to this process. It's not open-ended. It's not for the rest of your life. Except for, I think, in two biblical cases I can point to. Only in two cases was there a lifelong Nazarite vow. Extra credit tonight if you can name those two. All right. All the days of a separation. Now when they are complete, when they are fulfilled, he shall bring the offering to the doorway of the tent of meeting and present the offering to the Lord. So we'll get to that when we get to the conclusion there of this paragraph. Oh, not much of a quiz when the giveaway is right there on the screen. Jeepers. Samson was a lifelong Nazarite. In fact, he didn't have a choice about it. His parents made this choice for him while he was still in the womb, right? And uh, the issue is there. So when we get into the book of Judges and uh, when we get to Samson and his birth there in chapter 13, we'll pay attention to that and we'll have a frame of reference for it. We'll identify the conversation that his parents have with the angel there and it will make more sense to us because of our study tonight as we understand the principles of the Nazarite vow. Same thing with John the Baptist. And uh, same thing with the uh, circumstances he was under and, and the prohibition to, to cut his hair and the prohibition for drinking alcohol. Remember that that was one of the criticisms that was leveled against him and, and one of the criticisms leveled against Jesus Christ was because they were polar opposites on that regard. That uh, John the Baptist came neither eating or drinking and they said he had a demon. And uh, Jesus came eating and drinking and they said, oh, he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax gatherers and sinners. And, and so they weren't happy either way with, with John the Baptist or with Jesus and they criticized both for what they were doing. And I think we can learn a lot from those examples too. We might realize that if, if we're dedicating ourselves to trying to make people happy that we could just give up because uh, the people that want to be unhappy, uh, <laughs> we're not going to change their minds in, uh, in these ways. Understand also that the Lord Jesus Christ was a Nazarene. He was not a Nazarite. That gets such confusion, and it really shouldn't, but it does. Uh, He was a Nazarene. That is, he grew up in the village of Nazareth. He was not a Nazarite. If he was a Nazarite, he was a very crummy Nazarite because he touched a lot of dead people, brought them back to life. He uh, he did consume alcohol. He did have other things that uh, that would be a violation of the, the Nazarite. Uh, separation. No. He came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. It's like we call people Austinites because they're from Austin or Seattleites if they're from Seattle or other other expressions. Wherever they're from the the town they identify with uh, you identify with. All right. The Nazarite's dedication to the Lord entailed a voluntary abstention from otherwise normal human activity. This also is critical. The fact is, is that the, um, the abstaining from alcohol is not normal. That the abstaining from alcohol is something special. That is identified as being a deliberate choice that a believer could make in order to fulfill this special time. Okay? 
So abstinence from alcohol, as it says here in verse 3, he shall abstain from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar, whether made from wine or strong drink, nor shall he drink any grape juice or eat any fresh or dried grapes. What's wrong with grape juice? I thought the legalists all used grape juice in, in, in place of wine when they were trying to, you know, not be drinkers or whatever. And uh, that, that grape juice is the replica. It's the, it's the facsimile that you can, you can substitute for, for real wine if, if, if that happens to be your conviction in, in, in whatever. But see, here's the point. That, that the seriousness of this vow was such that not only are you abstaining from alcohol, you're abstaining from even the appearance, even the replica, even something that might lead to that, or even something that might just taste like that. Or maybe you're accidentally trying to get away with a grape juice dodge, but it was a little bit more ripe than you thought it was. Maybe it was a little bit more fermented than you anticipated. And, uh, and so now, unbeknownst to you, you violated your vow while you were trying to, trying to do the grape juice dodge. All right. Also the point is, why would this be special if um, some of our brothers and sisters that do preach the total abstinence no matter what, um, th- there are Christians that, that would absolutely preach the no alcohol, not a drop at any time for whatever reason, type of thing. And that's their view of spirituality is centered on, on alcohol and other things like that. But the, I, this verse becomes nonsensical then. If, if total abstinence is normal, if total abstinence is what's commanded by all believers of all times in all places everywhere, then, then this verse doesn't make any sense. Okay? You know, it'd be like saying, okay, the Ten Commandments uh, says, thou shalt not murder. So, uh, a requirement for the Nazarite vow is during the time of your Nazarite vow, you can't murder anybody. You know, that just, that doesn't make any sense. It's a sin anyway. It's already prohibited. Why, why would you add that to the Nazarite vow? Or, or don't commit adultery while you're under the Nazarite vow. Well, that's, that's already wrong. That's already a, a sin. So, um, anyway, I hope this makes sense. Because the dedication of the Lord entails a voluntary abstention from otherwise normal human activity. Likewise, abstinence from all haircutting, beard trimming, etc. We might uh, think of this as just personal uh, grooming, if you will. Uh, verse 5, all the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall pass over his head. He shall be holy until the days are fulfilled. So you get that? Beards make you holy. Maybe not. But the point being, and, and there's something also too to this, I think, um, Jesus has a statement where he's talking about some people who like to look pathetic when they're fasting. They like to put on this demonstrable notice like, hey, look at me, I'm starving to death. Look at me, I'm bedraggled looking. Look at me. And, and you should be impressed with how, how bedraggled I look because that's how holy I am. I've been, I've been fasting for all this time. And Jesus says, no. When you're fasting, Act like you're not. You know, nobody should know that but you and the Lord. It should be, it should be a surprise to anybody that couldn't tell you were, you were fasting in the first place. Anyway, we'll get to that when we get to the New Testament. For tonight, though, uh, all the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall pass over his head. He shall be holy until the days are fulfilled for which he separated himself to the Lord. He shall let all the locks of his hair of his head grow long. So what's the big deal about a haircut? What's the big deal about a razor? Why not shave? What's wrong with that? Well, think about the grape juice thing whereby you don't want to risk an accidental 
violation. You don't want to risk what might happen with a razor. You might risk um, cutting your head. You might risk blood. You might risk, and you don't want to. You don't want to violate. Remember the sanctity of blood that we saw time and time again in in Leviticus. Shedding innocent blood is a big deal in uh, in uh, in God's program. So no razor. All the days of your uh, the vow of your separation. Total separation from dead things. Verses 6 and 7. Total separation from dead things. And you think, well that's pretty easy. I don't remember the last time I touched a dead thing. Well, we're, we're spoiled. We're living in the modern world. Okay? Um, you know, we go to HEB and the, the, the animals we, we buy there are already dead and they don't even look like animals anymore because they're ground up and they're shaped into other shapes. But in the ancient world, you know, fixing dinner meant killing something. Okay? In, uh, in many occasions. All right. Um, but even uh, beyond food preparation and animals, the, the people involved. So uh, don't go near a dead person. He shall not make himself unclean for his father, for his mother, for his brother, for his sister when they die because his separation to God is on his head. By the way, I don't know what the, I don't, if anybody's ever estimated this or not, I've never found a study on this, but you know, demographic tables are curious to see different countries and different eras and different things, birth rates and death rates and, and whatnot. But the death rate for Israel had to be huge during the wilderness wanderings for a lot of reasons. First of all, most violations of Mosaic law carried the death penalty. <laughs> okay, So violating the Sabbath, stone them. And, and I mean, all these other things. The, the, um, the priest's daughter was playing the harlot in her father's house. She was to be burned by fire. There were a lot of judgments by death. And so you can imagine a fair amount of that, I imagine, was, was executed. And every time someone was put to death... There was a classification of people who could not touch, couldn't bury, couldn't touch, couldn't handle the, uh, the consequences of the judicial function of, of their system. And then beyond the fact, now it's kind of spoiler alert, we're going to get to the Kadesh Barnea rebellion here shortly in the book of Numbers, and we're going to learn that this 11-day journey to the promised land is going to take 40 years, okay? In which case, not only is there going to be a lot of death, God promised that there's going to be a lot of death. God promised that, that, that the death rate was going to include everybody except for Caleb and Joshua. There were going to be two who would live out of uh, all the folks that walked through the Red Sea over 20 years of age. So, yeah, when we talk about separation, uh, not going near a dead person, um, that would include being under a tent or in a house or in, in proximity to a dead body. All right, so all the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. Upon completion of the Nazarite vow, upon completion of this time period, special offerings are brought near to the Lord. So that's verses 13 through 21. Whatever the length of time is, when it's done, it's done. And so here's what he shall present. One male lamb, a year old without defect, for a burnt offering, one ewe lamb, a year old without defect, for a sin offering. What sin did he do? Did he, did he commit a sin? No, he did not commit a sin. Quit thinking that a sin offering demands a sin every single time. It does not. It's the name of the offering. Uh, so a ewe lamb, one year old without defect for a sin offering, and one ram without defect for a peace offering. And a basket of unleavened cakes of fine flour mixed with oil and unleavened wafers spread with oil. 
along with their grain offering and their drink offering. Then the priest shall present them before the Lord, shall offer his sin offering and his burnt offering. He shall also offer the ram for a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, together with a basket of unleavened cakes. The priest shall likewise offer its grain offering and its drink offering. The Nazarite shall then shave his dedicated head of hair, or his dedicated head, at the doorway of the tent of meeting, and uh, take the dedicated hair of his head and put it on the fire, which is under the sacrifice of peace offerings. Well, that's kind of cool. And the priest shall take the ram's shoulder when it has been boiled, and one unleavened cake out of the basket, and one unleavened wafer, and shall put them in the, on the hands of the Nazarite after he has shaved his dedicated hair. And the priest shall wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. It is holy for the priest, together with the breast offered by the wave, the waving of the thigh offered by lifting up. Afterward, the Nazarite may drink wine. And I expect he's going to want to. I expect there's going to be a feast. There's going to be a celebration. It's a time to toast and time to worship and time to love uh, the Lord your God. All right, so this is the law of the Nazarite who vows his offering to the Lord according to his separation in addition to what else he can afford according to his vow which he takes so that he shall do according to the law of his separation. And it seems to me like what's required here is only the minimum. If he wants to give above and beyond, he's free to give above and beyond. It says in addition to what else he can afford. And so this time of dedication, if you might think about it too, it's a, it's a great privilege if, uh, in, in fact, you're just, um, you know, you're not a priest, you're not a Levite, you're just some, you know, schlub from the tribe of Simeon or whatever, and you want to uh, just dedicate for a week, you know, and, and be completely holy as unto the Lord. And the, the, the believers under these Nazarite conditions can be, you know, functioning within the tabernacle and serving the, the priests and the Levites and they're, they're holy and dedicated to the Lord in this capacity, see. I think anyway. Different scholars think different things on that as far as the kind of service that they're doing. But we see the kind of service Samuel did when Samuel was dedicated for his life as unto the Lord. All right. Yeah, you'd be surprised. There's a lot of opinions on this and uh, different people and, and I I'm not clear on where they get some of their information, uh, but the idea that the Nazarite was just that he, he they didn't really it didn't turn him into a priest it didn't turn him into a Levite but it did grant him that kind of holy status whereby he was available to be functioning with the priests and the Levites as as it was defined here and it's just strange to me that um, some people have the idea that the Nazarite was just. He didn't do anything. That it was basically a time of sitting there and not doing anything except sitting there being holy, you know, and, and, and praying or meditating or just being an inactive monk, I guess. But um, anyway, when I'm looking at Samuel and when I'm looking at Samson and I'm looking at at John the Baptist, they were some very busy individuals. They they did a lot of stuff. They didn't just sit there not drinking and letting their hair grow long. They were they were actively serving the Lord in various ministry pursuits. All right, then we get to the benediction that's stated here. The Lord provided a ritual benediction for the Aaronic priesthood to bless the people with. And it shouldn't surprise us because so much of this liturgy was very detailed, it was very comprehensive. The God had given details about, you know, how to pour out blood and where to sprinkle it and what to wave and when to wave it and all the other things. So it shouldn't shock us 
that when the priesthood was expected to pronounce a baraka, to pronounce a blessing, that God might even give them the uh, the script. He might even give them the uh, the actual uh, the rote script by which they could recite it in uh, in this way. And so the very famous "Lord bless you and keep you," all the details on this. But it, this is the ritual benediction for the Aaronic priesthood to bless the people with. So the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, "Speak to Aaron and to his sons, saying, Thus." You shall bless the sons of Israel. You shall say to them, and I quote, right? And then this is the word for word what they're supposed to say. Yahweh, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. So those are the three phrases. Verse 24, verse 25, verse 26. And um, I thought I had added to those notes. I don't see. All right. I intended to expand upon those. I see now that I failed. (laughs) All right. But the difference between blessing and keeping and what all is involved with this, what do we mean when we say God bless you? Right? Do we mean anything by that? Or are we just, is it just, it's just a gut response because somebody sneezed. And and so we don't even think about it. Somebody sneezed, we say, God bless you. And it's just a it's a it's a responsive thing. Okay? No, it means something. What does this mean? We are invoking deity. We're not gonna take the Lord's name in vain. If I'm invoking Yahweh's name in order to bless and to keep, then there has to be a substance behind that. There has to be a basis in reality. Is he blessing because I said so? Is God now obligated to bless because I said God bless you? Okay? Why? When we, when we phrase these things as a prayer, as a wish prayer, when we're desiring for God to do the blessing and to do the keeping, yes, He's faithful to do the blessing and do the keeping, not because we say so, but because He has told us to say so. This is His intent. He wants His priesthood to be the, the mediators between God and man. He wants the priesthood uh, to represent the people before God. And so these priests come and they bring the sacrifices and they offer up the sweet-smelling savor and God is blessed by the worship as it goes up. God then returns that blessing back to the people by means of this verbal expression. All right. So the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine on you. The, um, the alternative is, is not fun. <laughs> okay? The alternative, when God turns His back, that's not good. Okay? Um, but for the face to be shining, that's a positive shining. That's a blessing. You don't want him to, uh, to look upon you with anger, and you don't want him to turn his back. You don't want him to close his ears when, uh, when sin creates a barrier between you and God. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. No such formula for the benediction is to be found in the New Testament for church-age believers. The closest thing we have is the so-called Lord's Prayer when the disciples said, you know, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples, which I find curious being that, uh, you know, John's ministry was one of anticipation for the arrival of the Christ. And, and, and we don't actually have spelled out what that prayer was. Whatever the prayer was that John taught his disciples to pray is not recorded in the Scripture. Uh, but then Jesus said, all right, he gives them the, you know, pray in this way then, and we have the, the, uh, the so-called Lord's Prayer there in, in, uh, in the Gospel record. That's the closest thing that we have in terms of a benediction, as in terms of a blessing. Um, 
not exactly the same, of course. And I think it is significant that we, uh, we don't have the, uh, the prayers by rote. In fact, we're warned against that. We're warned in our church age priesthood against mindless repetition or prayers by rote or anything that can become formalistic and ritualistic without the reality. The truth is, is that we have the, the full access before the Father as, as priesthood, as the believer priest in Christ. And rather than reciting something by rote, we can just freely talk to our Father who knows us and who loves us and who uh, we have the, the privilege and blessing to, to, uh, to call Abba Father the way that we do. So we appreciate that as well. All right. So they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel, and then I will bless them, invoking my name. And uh, again, I would just stress, if, if, if this is alien to you, if you've never really read things of this nature, um, and I don't know what I would recommend, maybe um, besides history books, <laughs> but just something. Maybe um, you know Colleen McCullough for something with a historical fiction where the author just gets you totally absorbed into the, the culture of that day and age and the fear and the trembling that they had. And the invoking of the deities was, was so powerful in, uh, in, the, in the pagan mind in the, in the ancient world and, and different things there. But the idea of invoking the God's name in vain became really unthinkable in, uh, in some of these respects. Nowadays we just put our hand on the Bible and say, so help me God, and we don't realize the, the actual um, the power that that has and how seriously God takes that, because He is the God of truth. And if you take His name in vain and you invoke His name as bearing witness to the truthfulness of your statement, you better be making a true statement. Because uh, he's a jealous God and he will come down hard on, uh, on oath breakers. Alright, so stay tuned with that. Yeah, I'm trying to think. I think the uh, Colleen McAuliffe is good with the Roman Empire. And the Romans were highly superstitious anyway in different ways. And then the, um, they, some of them would find themselves as fortune's favorites and they would pray to you know, the goddess Fortuna and, and aspects there. And then Julius Caesar loved being a descendant of the Julian clan supposedly was, was birthed by uh, Aphrodite or Venus. And so he viewed that he was favored anyway just by being a, a descendant of Venus. And they, they took this stuff very seriously. All right, well, let's get to chapter 10. So skipping over 7, 8, and 9, because we've covered those already. And, and keep in mind, we're still at Sinai. We have not marched forth yet, okay? Israel is still at Mount Sinai. They're, they're going to march forth. We're going to see them when they march forth. But first they need these trumpets. So the Lord uh, instructed Israel to manufacture two silver trumpets. And that's what these first ten verses are about. And this is what's going to help them in their order of march. So make for yourself two trumpets of silver, of hammered work, you shall make them, and you shall use them for summoning the congregation and for having the camps set out. Quite noteworthy that we have silver here, not gold. Gold was used in the temple, gold was in the tabernacle, we had a lot of things that were gold or wood overlaid with gold or pure gold, beaten work. Um, very little actual silver in the, uh, in the tabernacle itself. But these trumpets are of silver. Of hammered work, make them, use them for summoning the congregation, for having the camps set out. When both are blown, all the congregation shall gather themselves to you at the doorway of the tent of meeting. So that's one signal. 
Yet if only one is blown, then the leaders of the heads of the divisions of Israel shall assemble before you. So that's the difference. Two, two, uh, two trumpets, everybody, the whole congregation. If only one trumpet, just the leaders, the heads of the divisions of Israel, the heads of the Aleph. Remember we talked about Aleph? We talked about that Hebrew word that sometimes can be a number, sometimes can be a description of something that's not a number. Like the heads of the divisions of Israel, the, the battalion commanders, the heads of the armies. Even in modern Hebrew, the Aleph is the, is the, uh, the colonel of the uh, Israeli army. All right. But then verse 5, when you blow an alarm, the camps that are pitched on the east side shall set out. When you blow an alarm a second time, the camps that are pitched on the south side shall set out. An alarm is to be blown for them to set out. When convening the assembly, however, you shall blow without sounding an alarm. So there's different things that are blown, different signals, different um, alarms. Not every trumpet blast is an alarm. You've got to know your trumpet blast. Which ones are the call to assemble and which ones are the alarms? See, if you're, if you're confusing reveille with taps, that's a problem. <laughs> okay? One of them is supposed to get you up and get you out of bed and get you going on the day, and then the other one is at night. Or funerals, that's more sad. Um, but that's what, that's what this comes down to, okay? Did the Navy have trumpet blasts? Trumpet signals, or is this only an Army thing? I'm outnumbered by Navy people. All right. Yeah, naval ships had trumpets, didn't they? Some, okay. In boot camp. <laughs> gotcha. All right, well, let's get down through verse 10. Verse 8 says, The priestly sons of Aaron, moreover, shall blow the trumpets, and this shall be for you a perpetual statute throughout your generations. When you go to war in your land against the adversary who attacks you, then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets that you may be remembered before the Lord your God and be saved from your enemies. This is all a part of being on the alert. This is having watchmen and blowing the alarm in a timely manner. The alarm is what allows for folks to, uh, to, to be alerted, to be prepared, to, to respond and not be ambushed and massacred. Also in the day of your gladness and in your appointed feasts and on the first days of your months you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings. Here now we start to learn that they were actually not only on the day, uh, the, the first day of the year, right, that there was a trumpet blown. There's a feast of trumpets that's blown in the fall. But not only for the feast of trumpets, but the first day of every month gets its own silver trumpet blast. So in the days of your gladness and your appointed feasts, on the first day of your months, you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings, over the sacrifices of your peace offerings. They shall be as a reminder of you before your God, I am the Lord your God. Remember, it's also it's a lunar calendar as well. So the month is not uh, tracked on a 30-day calendar. The, tra- the, the month is actually tracked when they make the determination that this new moon is, uh, is, has arrived. All right. <laughs> so you got your outline here and the subpoints and the study. The single trumpet blast was a summons for the tribal elders to assemble. A double trumpet blast was an alarm for war in order to break camp. Successive blasts of the alarm signaled the individual stages of the march. And this matches well with what we studied uh, the other day when we talked about the east camp, the south camp, 
and then after they led the way, then the center, the the uh, the non-combatants, the priests, the Levites, the the packed-up tabernacle, and uh, then they would proceed after two uh, brigades had already gone forth. Then after the the civilians or the the non-combatants are moving forth, then it's time for the rear guard, time for the west camp and the north camp that then uh, follow behind. The trumpet blast was the responsibility of Aaron and his sons. Isn't this interesting? You know, they what kind of music did they have before David? I think in David's time he really reformed a whole lot of it. He was a musician anyway, but I think prior to David, they didn't have a, they had, I guess Miriam had her tambourines and there was some dancing and whatever. Don't know that we know much about their music. They only had one psalm, Psalm 90, until uh, until <laughs> until David's lifetime. Yeah, we don't really know much about their Yes, true. Yeah, Egypt was a musical culture. Yeah. All right. And we also know that yeah, there was there was singing, there was there were uh they had a song when they got through the Red Sea and Moses had a song when when he was getting ready to die and there were other songs that were mentioned. So they were obviously a musical culture. We can't say that David uh cornered the market on that. So Aaron and his sons. The trumpet blast was a call for the Lord of hosts to fight on their behalf. All right, yeah, you don't want to be wimpy about your trumpet blast so that God doesn't hear you. (laughs) Okay, sound it, sound it loud and clear that you may be remembered before the Lord your God and be saved from your enemies. All right, different things there. And it's curious to me, you know, uh, just drawing by analogy and making applications for churches and ministries today in different ways, um, you know, focusing on what is the purpose of music in the church anyway? And are we, is it here for entertainment purposes? Or is it here to keep us on the alert? Is it here to, uh, to notify uh, the Lord of our dependence upon Him? Are we calling upon Him for salvation, for, for deliverance and the testings and the conflicts that we're going into? All right. Appointed fees, conjunction with burnt offerings, peace offerings. The seventh month had an extraordinary degree of trumpet bl- uh, blasting. Even the whole feast was called the Feast of Trumpets. All right, now we're ready to set forth. In the second year, in the second month, on the 20th of the month, should have been the 22nd, that would have been two two twenty two. but no. The second year, second month, 20th of the month, the cloud was lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony. And you can imagine the excitement because they've been preparing for this for a whole year. They've been told about this. The cloud had brought them through the Red Sea. The cloud had brought them to Sinai. And then the cloud had sat there for a whole year. And now they've, got, they've built the tabernacle. They've anointed the priests. They've got all the teaching that's been going on. Um, now they're ready to set out. For the first time now, the cloud is rising. And oh my goodness, it's time to go. How does this work? <laughs> So after all the time of preparation, the nation of Israel set out from Sinai. And uh, the departure here as it gets spelled out. So the cloud was lifted up. The sons of Israel sat on their journey from the wilderness of Sinai. Then the cloud settled down in the wilderness of Paran. So not a long trip. Okay, You're just getting your legs. You haven't marched for a while, so it's a fairly short trip from Sinai to Paran. 
So they moved out for the first time according to the commandment of the Lord through Moses. And we're going to see the standards that get lifted up and the, the order of march and all the procedures there. Before we get into those details though, just a, just a contrast. Okay, I think, I, I think it's significant. Because remember when they left Egypt, remember how quickly that was. Remember they were ordered to eat standing up with their feet shod in preparation for their departure. The redemption out of Egypt was accomplished in great haste with almost no preparation whatsoever. You know, and even uh, not packing really a whole lot because um, all the packing was done for them by the Egyptians who were happy to see them gone, right? The Egyptians kept loading them up with this and that and what else do you need? And here, take this and gold and wealth and, and everything. So just when I'm, I'm just kind of envisioning this now as a contrast from that. You could think of this as, you know, the redemption out of Egypt accomplished in great haste with almost no preparation whatsoever, allowing God to do all the work. Just thinking of it as, a, as an analogy there, okay? The departure from Sinai, on the other hand, was accomplished in great deliberateness with extensive preparation, working as God's fellow workers, in other words, they had a complete year to prepare for this. They had all of the teaching. They had the, the written record of the book of, of uh, Exodus, uh, you know, that was completed. That was, I mean, I think he wrote probably Genesis and Exodus both in that year. And then when did he write Leviticus? When did he write Numbers? Well, we'll see. He could have written Leviticus also before they set out here in Numbers chapter 10. Numbers and Deuteronomy come later. Okay, they come as he's getting ready to die. They come 40 years from now. Anyway, I just found a contrast there. The Exodus was one thing accomplished in great haste. Uh, we, we can't call this the Exodus, let's just call this the Sinai departure. Okay, the Sinai departure was uh, not in great haste, it was accomplished in great deliberateness with extensive preparation, working as God's fellow workers. So Israel set forth on the 20th day of the second month of the second year of the Exodus. The cloud was lifted up, and so uh, the banners go forth. And we're going to see a lot of other banners in this chapter. Um, I'm kind of borrowing an expression from Exodus 17. You might recall, the Lord my banner, Yahweh Nisi, Jehovah Nisi, the Lord my banner. Um, yeah. That was back in Exodus 17 when Moses built an altar and named it uh, Yahweh Nisi, the Lord my banner. Well, now we have these other banners in place. Judah's got a banner and uh, Reuben's got a banner. All these banners are going forward. So, um, the cloud went up, they set out, the cloud settled down in the wilderness of Paran, they know where they're going and they move out. They moved out for the first time according to the commandment of the Lord through Moses. And the standard of the camp of the sons of Judah, according to their army, set out first with Nashon, the son of Amminadab, over its army. Remember, we looked at these tribal leaders earlier. These tribal leaders were the heads of their tribe, tribal princes, if you want to call them princes, or tribal chiefs, if you want to call them chiefs. There was a different vocabulary depending on whether you're stressing their, their family relationship or their military duties. But when they came to present their offerings, they were representing their tribe in the, the free will offerings that they brought. We went tribe by tribe through those offerings. 
So we've already seen Nashon, the son of Amminadab. And these names are also the most famous and the most well-known to us because anytime we recite the genealogy of Jesus Christ, we recite them through the tribe of Judah, through Amminadab, through Nashon, and we go on down to Salmon and Boaz and Obed and Jesse and David. And we know the, we know the family tree that way because of other passages of Scripture. So these are, these are the names that we know, and I don't blame you if, if we're ignorant of the other names. Although we taught them last week. You should have known them when we went through chapter 8 on that. So, uh, Nethanel, the son of Zuar, over the tribal army of the sons of Issachar. Over the tribal army. This is a military formation. I, I stress that, I stress that, I stress that. And Eliab, the son of Helon, over the tribal army of the sons of Zebulun. So they're going. Okay? They're going. The tabernacle was taken down, the sons of Gershon, the sons of Merari, who were carrying the tabernacle, set out. Next, the standard of the camp of Reuben, according to their armies, set out with Eliezer, the son of Shadur, over his army. All right, so, making sure I'm not misspeaking or losing my place on this. Because this actually splits up some of the Levites into two different parts, not all one one Levitical fell swoop. All right. So yes, after Judah Brigade, I'm calling them the Brigade. Why do I call them a Brigade? Because that's what you have when you take multiple battalions and you combine multiple battalions together into a Brigade. The East Marshall Brigade. Spearheads of the march. This is Judah. Judah had three battalions himself plus Issachar and Zebulun. Each of those uh, tribes with three battalions apiece. So a total of nine battalions in this brigade that's going forth in the Judah Brigade. Then Gershon Company and Merari Company went forth. That's verse 17. So they're in between the first brigade and the second brigade. I, I misspoke earlier when I was talking about two brigades first and then the Levites coming out after them. All right, so we have um, Gershon and Merari. That's only two out of the three clans of, uh, of Levi. So then in verse 18, the Reuben Brigade. This is the South Marshall Brigade. They were camped on the south side of the tabernacle. Now they're marching forth. And um, Reuben has one command battalion and one support battalion. A little bit smaller than the, uh, than the armies of Judah. And we broke that down for you in chapter 1. And then Simeon and Gad follow in support. Three Simeon battalions and two Gad battalions. Now it's interesting, even though Simeon had three battalions, Simeon had more Maoth than, uh, than Reuben had. Nevertheless, even though Reuben only has the two battalions that he has, he's still in command. So we see the order of it there. After that is when Kohath Company can set forth. So here's the final company of the, uh, of the Levites. Remember, the tribal Levites broken down into the three clans. So we have the third clan setting out now. The Kohathites set out, carrying the holy objects, and the tabernacle was set up before their arrival. Well, now that, now that makes sense, of course. You want, you want Gershon and Merari to get there first because they've got to put the tent in place. They've got to get the, the, the stuff up before the ark can come marching in. All right. So the Kohathites set out carrying the holy objects and the tabernacle was set up before their arrival. You have your advance party there to get things going. And sometimes things don't go according to plan. 
<laughs> Sometimes uh, I was in the advance party that was in Panama and uh, waiting for the, the rest of the 411th MP company to arrive. It was only a, a platoon of us, or really not even a full platoon, a couple of squads that were down there in Panama as advance party. And uh, lo and behold, the rest of the company didn't join us down there because that's when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. And so uh, we got redirected. And as far as advance party was concerned, uh, they said, no, get back to Texas and you're all going to the desert. And that's what we ended up doing. Stayed in Texas and dumped off our green jungle stuff and picked up some uh, chocolate chip cookie dough uh, uh, desert stuff. Very stylish going to war dressed like uh, the chocolate chip outfits they gave us. And, uh, and off we went. So yeah, Kohath sets out. The advance party's already there, getting the tent set up. The tent should be constructed by the time these guys arrive so that the, the ark can be brought right in. All right, next, the standard of the camp of the sons of Ephraim, according to their armies, was set out with Elishama, the son of Amihud, over its army. Ephraim is the tribe that's leading the effort. They were camped on the west. Okay, Remember, Ephraim was one of the larger tribes. Ephraim would have headship in, in years to come. Ephraim would have headship over the northern uh, uh, kingdom. When, when the, after the Civil War, when they split ten tribes and two tribes, Ephraim had the leadership of the, the ten tribes to the north. Gamaliel, the son of Pedazur, over the tribal army of the sons of Manasseh, and Abadan, the son of Gideoni, over the tribal army of the sons of Benjamin. Again, these are tribal armies, and so they don't mix and match. They can work, they can coordinate, they can work together, but they're not mixing and matching. Every battalion is, is limited to that tribe and that clan. Every company is limited to that clan. As we studied that breakdown on Sunday from Numbers chapter 1. Then the standard of the camp of the sons of Dan, according to their armies, and this is the final army to send forth. This is the, the northern uh, brigade. The Dan Brigade, the North Marshall Brigade, brought up the rear. Dan had one command battalion and two support battalions. Dan actually had the largest number of Maoth of anybody, of the, the entire muster in chapter 1. They had fewer uh, Elufim, they had fewer chiefs than Judah, but they had more, one more Maoth than Judah had. Judah had 26, Dan had 27. And so we can structure those 27 into nine battalions, or into nine companies, three battalions, and, uh, and that's how it's listed there. Two Asher battalions and three Naphtali battalions were in support. All right. So that gets us down through verse 28. This was the order of march of the sons of Israel by their armies as they set out. By their armies. And remember when we were tracking the census, it was not a civilian census. It wasn't counting women, it wasn't counting children, it wasn't counting old people. Remember the vocabulary, the, the term taf, that speaks of non-combatants. The only uh, enumeration was happening was the muster of the foot soldiers, the infantry uh, companies of, uh, of Israel by their armies as they set out. All right. The rest of the chapter, verses 29 down through 36, a couple of other details happen here as they're breaking camp, as they're leaving Sinai. Moses said to Hobab, the son of Ruel, the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law. Now this presents some puzzles as well because of other passages where Hobab is, um, 
sometimes Hobab is, is referred to as a brother-in-law, sometimes Hobab is referred to as a father-in-law. Uh, I think he's most likely he's the brother-in-law, he's the son of Jethro. But there is a puzzle there, and if you want to read more on that, you can pull it up in your fact book, and then you can read about it in the, um, uh, the Lexham Bible Dictionary that you have in your Logos installation. So Moses said to Hobab, the son of Rule, the Midianite. And remember, Jethro's got a lot of names. And one of his names is Rule, and one of his names is Jethro, and he's got a couple other names as well. He might even, well, no, he doesn't have Hobab because Hobab is the son of Rule. Um, but these are some of the puzzles that people go through trying to sort these things out. Anyway, he said, we are setting out to the place of which the Lord said, I will give it to you. Come with us and we will uh, do you good for the Lord has promised good concerning Israel. He's inviting Hobab, the Midianite, to join, to follow along, to become a part of the nation of Israel. Even though he's not Jewish, he does, he's not by birth, he's, he doesn't have a, an inheritance among the tribes of Israel, but with Moses' personal invitation, being, uh, you know, I guess if you're brother-in-law to the mediator, that should count for something. <laughs> you get some kind of a, uh, a green card or some kind of uh, visa to, uh, to, uh, to live in the land. But he said to him, I will not come, but rather will go to my own land and relatives. And so uh, I, I spoke about this um, a couple weeks ago when we were talking about the Exodus uh, this is actually a very useful verse in ways that I didn't think about 20 years ago, in ways that a lot of folks don't think about. It actually speaks to the location of Sinai. And 20 years ago I was trying to defend, or I, I did defend, a Midianite location for, for Mount Sinai uh, because of a misreading of Exodus chapter 3, a misreading of some other passages where Moses is shepherding the flock of his father-in-law it was his father-in-law who was the Midianite, but it didn't demand that he hap- he didn't have to be shepherding the flock in the land of Midian, that he was shepherding the flock in the wilderness, on the backside of the wilderness, really on the Egyptian side of the wilderness, which was the backside of the wilderness as far as Midian was concerned. And uh, so as soon as you abandon the necessity to have a Midianite Mount Sinai, then other possibilities open up for different things. And this verse too, by the way, is I think definitive. I think it's proof. To me it is such a logical defeater that you have to remove the Midianite locality uh, for Sinai just off the table altogether because remember they are leaving, where are they in this chapter? They're at Sinai. They're, getting, they're departing Sinai to go to Paran, their first stop. And as they're departing from Mount Sinai, Hobab says, I'm not coming with you, I'm rather going to my own land, which is not where I am now. It's not Sinai. I'm going to leave here and go to my own land and my own relatives. So I think this verse does a lot, and I put a note on this. We discussed this um, before, and I think it goes well with a statement that Jethro also made in Exodus 18. It says in verse 27, when Jethro departed, Moses bade his father-in-law farewell, and he, that's Jethro, went his way into his own land. That's another example of a Midianite who left Sinai in order to go to his own land. So I think between Exodus 18.27 and Numbers 10.30, I think uh, it's pretty definitive, at least in my mind now, that uh, 
a Midianite locality for Sinai is not appropriate. So, huge change between the 2002 notebook and the 2022 notebook. And, uh, you know, I'm I'm publicly recanting and and there's no scandal there. (laughs) All right. But Moses did invite his brother-in-law, Hobab, to accompany Israel and to serve as a recon platoon for their march. He said, so Moses continued after Hobab said, no, I'm not going to do that. Moses continued and said, please do not leave us insomuch as you know where we should camp in the wilderness and you will be as eyes for us. It's always good to have a local scout that knows the territory. So it will be if you go with us that whatever good the Lord does for us, we will do for you. So you can benefit us by being, you know, a scout and knowing the lay of the land, and we can bless you by being God's chosen people. <laughs> and uh, we got this great benediction now we can pronounce upon you, and uh, and we can bless you in, in a lot of other ways too, just by associating with us. Remember, blessing the Jewish people promises what? I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. Thus they set out from the mount of the Lord three days' journey. And it's curious to me, we, don't, we have, I kind of want an extra verse in there that's not written. Because we have Hobab saying, nope, got to go. And we have Moses saying, oh, don't leave us quite yet. And then we don't know. It doesn't say if Hobab relented or whatever in, uh, in that. There is a hint later on a reference in Judges 4 about Heber the Kenite who had separated himself from the Kenites from the sons of Hobab the father-in-law of Moses pitching his tent as far away as the Okozani. So that's not related to this episode but it does show Hobab does go on to have a clan that descends from him and uh, one of his descendants is this uh, Heber character that we'll get to in Judges chapter 4. All right. Finally then, verses 33 through 36, Israel set forth on a three-day march. A three-day march following the Lord from Sinai. So they set out from the Mount of the Lord three days' journey with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord journeying in front of them for three days to seek out a resting place for them. And the cloud of the Lord was over them by day when they set out from the camp. And it came about when the Ark set out that Moses said, hey, here's a song, I told you they were musical. Rise up, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered, let those who hate you flee before you. When it came to rest, he said, Return, O Lord, to the myriad thousands of Israel. There's a statement there too. What's what's the myriad about? The myriad thousands. You know, understanding that the Lord of hosts, that's plural. More than one host. That yes, there's a human host walking along, but there's also an angelic host walking along or flying along or whatever whatever they're doing. Okay, well that gets us to that. Well, we'll come back tomorrow night and we'll see that uh, when when the very next pericope heading starts off with the people complain, uh, that shouldn't surprise us, right? Because what did they do after they crossed the Red Sea? It didn't take them long and they're grumbling. It didn't take them long and you have you know, Mara and Meribah and the rebellions of what happened there. So here they've had one three-day march. They get to their next camp and they're setting up, and we have the complaint in Numbers chapter 11. So that's for tomorrow night. Father, I thank you for tonight. I thank you for your truth. Thank you for your protection watching over us as we assemble here. 
Thank you. Uh, and we do. We pray for that individual from earlier. Bless him, Father, and, and uh, just thank you for being faithful. We thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.